Now, if you will take your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the passage that Don just read for us in Luke chapter 13. Would you turn there, please? Luke chapter 13, if you're a guest online or in the hub or here in the auditorium, once you know that we have for a number of weeks, many months, been making a journey through the Gospel of Luke, and we are learning so much more about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know what? Eternity won't be long enough to learn all that we're going to learn about Jesus. What a, what a privilege we have. Take this journey, inspired Word of God, and, and know not just the historical Jesus, but the Jesus who lives, and lives in our lives. And so we've come now to this 13th chapter. And this passage that we're going to focus on this morning that Don just read for us. The last time I recall speaking from this passage here at West Park was on Sunday, September 16th, 2001. And I'm sure many of you who are old enough can remember that Sunday, that was the Sunday after the tragic events on Tuesday of 9-11. And of course, on that date, September 11th, 2001, terrorist attack was carried out on the United States. Planes flown into the World Trade Center towers plane flown into the Pentagon building, plane that was hijacked and courageous men and women trying to take back control, tragically died as a plane crashed near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And on that day, September 11, 2001, 2000, 977 people lost their lives. Thousands of others were injured. Included people of varieties of nationalities and ethnicities. And the response across the nation, you who can recall, was astounding. It was National shock, national grief, and national anger. And also, you may remember that during that time, there were numbers of united and interfaith worship services. These services offered messages of hope, and consolation, many words and messages of comfort for the bereaved and hurting. But very often it was shared in those services that God was with every one of those victims and that each one of those victims in spirit was gently carried on that day into his presence. 
Now, of course, my thoughts, like tens of thousands of other pastors that week, were focused on what to share on the coming Sunday because there was no doubt the houses of worship would be filled, and they certainly were. I recall that our own attendance and our worship services here that Sunday about 800 more than our normal attendance. And so, of course, with all the other pastors, faith leaders, I prayed about what I should share. And the thought came to me that week as I was praying, what does the Lord say? What does the Lord say? Because really what's important is not what I have to say or what any other pastor or faith leader has to say. What matters is the word of the Lord. And so I began to think, do we have any record of some similar event where our master responded? That he said something in the context of such a terrible terrible tragedy and immediately my thoughts went to this passage Luke 13 Luke chapter 13 and my message that Sunday was entitled a tale of two towers a tale of two towers now today I want to reference those two towers But, as we are involved in a journey through the Gospel of Luke, I first want us to focus on this passage and make sure we focus on it in the context in which it is given by the Holy Spirit. And so what I'd like to share with you today is on this theme from this word from Jesus. It is... Senseless tragedies and saving truths. How the Lord, out of what appeared to be senseless tragedies, wants us to make sure that we know and hear saving truths. Saving truths. Now, as we do this this morning, there are three points I want us to consider. Three points that we'll consider. Number one, we're going to see here a disastrous situation. A disastrous situation. Secondly, our Lord is going to give a personal exhortation. A personal exhortation. And then thirdly, from this, we're going to receive a timeless illustration timeless illustration those are the three points I want us to consider from this passage for our hearts this morning especially as we approach our time of communion together a disastrous situation a personal exhortation a timeless illustration now first of all let's make sure we understand the prelude to this passage We don't take it out of context. 
because this passage is part of a sermon by Jesus. If you'll notice, the sermon begins being recorded back in chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus is speaking to a huge, huge throng of people. And he begins this sermon to the crowd as it's recorded for us back in chapter 12, verse 1. And so we have been covering this sermon of Jesus for several weeks. And usually it takes several sermons for me to cover one sermon. Some of you know that well. But Jesus has just made a point. Now, we are here in the message, and Jesus has just made a point. And his point is that he is the cause of division. You'll see that at the end of chapter 12. He's just said that he himself is the cause of division. That his current ministry is dividing people. That his future ministry will continue to divide people. And then ultimately his final ministry as judge will eternally divide people. He's talking about how he is divisive. And just as he's talking about judgment, just as he's warning about the judgment to come, he is interrupted in his message by a special news bulletin. He and the crowd are informed by some people that a disastrous situation has just occurred in Jerusalem. A disastrous situation. It is a tragic atrocity. A tragic atrocity has been carried out against the nation in the temple. Verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans. Now remember, Jesus is a Galilean. Told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, this is Pontius Pilate, who ruled as a Roman procurator from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D., the one before whom Jesus will be standing in just a few weeks. He is told that Pilate has mingled the blood of some of his fellow Galileans with their own sacrifices and the blood of their sacrifices and it has happened in the temple itself. Now we're not informed in the Bible of the specific circumstances here but it probably refers to an event of which we are told about from ancient historians. We're told that Pilate had come up with a good idea. The good idea was that Jerusalem needed a better water supply. And he determined to build an aqueduct to bring water into the city. That was a good idea, but the bad idea was to pay for it with the offerings from the temple. To take the money of the offerings given to God in the temple and use them to build 
an aqueduct to bring water into the city. Now the Galileans had come in their groups to worship in Jerusalem and the Galileans were always known as a little rowdy. And they were there protesting this. Evidently their protests got very violent. And Pilate sent in Roman troops who were disguised as worshipers wearing cloaks. And under their cloaks they had huge clubs. And they got into the crowd of the Galileans who had come to sacrifice. They took out their clubs and began to beat them. But evidently the soldiers got carried away because many, many Galileans were beaten to death. Their blood spilled out of their bodies and mingled with the blood of sacrifices that were being offered in the temple. Now this is an atrocity. This is an atrocity in the temple of God. This is a national outrage. And how is Jesus going to respond? Well, he responded very strangely and very strongly. And the way he responded was by referring to another disastrous situation that everyone knew about. He refers to another terrible accident involving a falling tower. Look at it, verse 4. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now again, we have no biblical record of what has taken place here, really don't have a historical uh, record, but they may be connected. These events very well may be connected because the Tower of Siloam was located at the southeast corner of Jerusalem. It was located over a huge man-made beautiful reservoir at the pool of Siloam, it was fed by a spring that came out of the valley called the Gihon Spring. And about 800 years ago, King Hezekiah had caused a tunnel to be cut, bringing the water from the Gihon Spring all the way up to the city of David, the southeast corner of Jerusalem at that time and a huge pool, the pool of Siloam had been constructed over the ages and it was a water supply and evidently it may very well have been connected with what Pilate was doing. Pilate was going to build this aqueduct. It was going to come in through this natural reservoir of the Gihon Spring and The pool of Siloam, it was going to flow right into Jerusalem. It would be held up by huge towers. And one of these towers had fallen 
and 18 people had died. Everyone was aware of it. So Jesus has just received word that some of his fellow Galileans have been slaughtered in the temple. And he refers to people of Jerusalem who've lost their lives in an unusual way. Now, what's going on here? These two disastrous events were national headlines. Everybody knew about them. He had just been informed. Everyone had been informed of this national atrocity. Everybody was aware of this construction project failure that happened. Maybe the two were connected and people are trying to wonder what's going on here. And so Jesus addresses the situation, but he goes beyond the headlines. As a matter of fact, he goes to the deeper story. And he doesn't go to the headlines for the nation to read. He goes to the deeper story for everybody to read themselves. And he gives a personal exhortation. A personal exhortation. Now listen carefully. Of all people who's not heartless, Jesus is not heartless. Right? He's in, he, his heart overflows with love and compassion. He's not heartless. His answer to the question here can seem a little obscure, maybe even a little remote or unfeeling, but that's not the case at all. Jesus is not heartless. He cares about these people who have died. He cares about their loved ones. But his main concern is the hearts and souls of those who are still alive. He is most concerned that the people still alive know the peril in which they might be living, and many of them are living, every single moment, and they're not aware of it. And so Jesus takes this opportunity, having received this national news, break into his sermon... And he shares some words of warning and some words of hope. Now notice, some words of warning. What does Jesus warn the people about? First of all, he warns them regarding having a judgmental attitude. A judgmental attitude. Listen to Jesus in verse 2. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Notice, do you think that they were worse? Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower fell in Siloam and killed them, do you, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. What's Jesus warning about? Listen carefully, church. He's warning about connecting sin with circumstances. Connecting sin with circumstances. This is what works righteousness does all the time. Happened in Judaism. It happens even in so-called Christianity at times today. 
that you can know who God favors because everything goes well with them. And you can know who God is upset with and they're not really right with God because things continue to go wrong. Jesus says, don't even think about going there. He's warning people. What's he saying? He's saying, do not lay this on people. Don't lay this on people. Don't don't lay it on people that, hey, if you were right with God, how could things be going so wrong for you? You you remember Job had some friends like that. And you know the well-known phrase, with friends like that, what? Who needs enemies? And they kept saying, come on, Job, fess up. What a wreck in your life. Everything, everything, everything going wrong. No righteous man could have this going on in his life. Now, come on, fess up, buddy. It had carried on even to Jesus' disciples. You remember Jesus' disciples saw a man blind from his birth. And what question did they ask Jesus? Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, the Jewish people, the rabbis, had become so wise, they even taught a baby could sin in the womb. If this child was born blind, this man, he now he's blind from birth, he must have sinned or his parents sinned. Jesus' disciples asked that question. The Lord says, do not, do not have that kind of judgmental attitude. Don't lay that on people. And friends, can I stop here just for a moment? Don't lay it on yourself. Don't lay it on yourself. Don't try to determine where your relationship with the Lord is based on your circumstances in life. Bad things happen. And bad things happen to bad people. And bad things happen to quote unquote good people. (laughs) And guess what? Bad things happen to God's people. And what a terrible thing to lay on your shoulders. As a matter of fact, it's like you picked up the club and gave it to Satan to beat your brains out with. And he will take it and say... How could somebody's life be so messed up if God truly loved you or if you were right with God? You must not be a very good Christian. You might not be a Christian at all. And guess what? We start connecting those things. We lay that on ourselves. That is not wise. Jesus shares words of warning regarding a judgmental attitude, but his greatest words of warning, listen up, are words of warning regarding approaching judgment. Approaching judgment. Look at verse 3. Listen to Jesus. Now I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, that's an interesting word, perish. It means more than die. He's just been informed that some people have died. And he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will always likewise, you will all perish. The word perish here does not mean to die physically. It means to die spiritually, to be cut off from God, to be cut off from life, 
and to be eternally separated from God in sin and in punishment for your sins. That's what the Bible says it means to perish. And Jesus says if you do not repent, you are going to perish. Jesus' point is this. Listen carefully. Life is uncertain. But some things are absolutely certain. What are some things that are absolutely certain? This is what Jesus is trying to get across. There are things absolutely certain. This is certain. We all have an expiration date. Death is certain. It is appointed unto all men, all people, to what? Die. Death is certain. What's certain after that? There's a certain date of a court date. It is appointed unto all men once to die, and after death, what? The judgment. The Bible says we will all individually stand before God and give an account of our lives to God. You have an expiration date, my friend, and you have a court date. And God knows when both are. You don't. It is certain that we all have an expiration date. We all have a court date. And it is also certain, according to Lord Jesus Christ, the loving Savior, that all guilty sinners will be punished. Guilty sinners will what? Perish. These are the words of Jesus. This is the Jesus that many today do not know because this is the Jesus that is not taught today. But this is the historical Jesus. He said that all guilty sinners who stand before God will perish. Now friends, let that settle in. But now, thank God, thank God, thank God that Jesus sharing words of warning shares words of hope. Jesus always speaks the truth in love. And Jesus is the one who gives us hope. And what's his words of hope? He says there's an approaching judgment. He says, but this is the truth. You can avert that judgment. That judgment can be averted. Listen to what he says. He says it in verse 3 and verse 5. Look, if you would, at verse 5. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says there's a way to avert the judgment. There's a way to not have the court date be one where you will be found guilty and you will perish. He says there's a way to avert that. And the way to avert that is to repent. Repent. Some of you are saying, well, Pastor Sam, come on, give us the word of hope. Okay, I will. Repent. That's the greatest word of hope there is. The greatest word of hope is Jesus saying, 
you have the opportunity to repent. Repentance is a word filled with hope. I love what I read this week. It comes from a pastor who lived nearly 400 years ago. His name was Philip Henry. He was a British pastor. His son was Matthew Henry. Some of you may have his commentaries. But his father, Philip Henry, said this. Listen carefully to the pastor. Some people do not like to hear much of repentance. But I think it is so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I should desire to die preaching repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit, I should desire to die practicing it. We are all repenters if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We are repenting because we don't measure up. We're repenting, constantly repenting. It's a word of hope. Some people don't understand the word. What does the word repentance mean? Well, friends, I think it's so important. I want to pause here just for a moment before we go to communion and make sure you understand repentance because some people... Because they don't understand the meaning of the word repentance, they have a false understanding of repentance, and that false understanding of repentance could either keep them under bondage of despair or could give them a false hope. Repentance which literally means a change of mind, metanoia, change of mind. It has the idea of confession, a change of mind. It means your intellect. It means that you start to recognize you are wrong and God is right. That's where repentance starts. God is right, I am wrong. Repentance includes the idea of contrition. Contrition means a change of heart. You don't feel the same about sin the way you once felt. You you felt okay. Maybe you're doing all right. Now you feel guilty and you feel how wrong it is. And you have an emotion about that. It's not just emotional, but it reaches your emotion. You're grieved over what you know about yourself and what you know about God. And then repentance has the idea of conversion. It means to change, conversion. It's a change of life. That means your volition. That means your will. To repent means that you agree with God. He's right, you're wrong. It means there's come a time in your life that you're contrite over your sins. You're broken over how wrong you are and how right God is. And from your very soul, you you turn to God away from sin and you desire to walk with God in the ways of God. That's repentance. And Jesus, as he gives a warning, he gives this absolute hope-filled offer of an imperishable life. 
What did Jesus say? He that truly believes. And repentance is part of truly believing on Jesus. Not just believing about Him. But believing on Him and into Him. He who believes shall never what? Perish. But has right now everlasting life. You see repentance is so hopeful. It's so hope-filled because when you repent of your sins and you turn to God, you are given an imperishable life. You will never, ever, ever perish. It can't happen. It won't happen. Why? Because of Jesus. You've repented. You've turned from your sin and you've turned to the Savior and your hope is not that you've done good enough, you've overcome enough, or you've tried to help enough, but as a helpless sinner, you hope and trust in a saving God, Jesus Christ. And that is imperishable life. Now, that happens when repentance is genuine. How do you know if it's genuine? It bears fruit. And that's Jesus' final point. Let's just listen to him, then we head for our time of communion. Jesus says, let me give you a timeless illustration. He says, now... Here's what this looks like. Verse 6, he told this parable. Parable is an earthly, physical story with a heavenly, spiritual meaning and message. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and he found none. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up all the ground? And he answered him. The vine dresser answered him, sir, sir, let it alone this year. Let alone also this year until I dig around it, get it from being root bound. I'm going to put manure on it. The ultimate organic, life-giving substance. (laughs) Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What's this story about? What's this parable about? Listen carefully. It's about fruitless religion and its reward. Fruitless religion and its reward. Now, very clearly, Jesus is talking about Israel, the nation Israel, first of all. Israel is referred to in the Old Testament several times as God's fig tree that he planted in the promised land. This fig tree has been cared for by God. God has cared for the people of Israel. God has nourished the people of Israel. He has sent them people to teach them and water them. And He has tenderly cared for Israel. And now He has sent His own Son who has ministered to them for three years. Do you see that in the parable? This is the third year of Jesus' ministry. 
He has proven that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the King. And the Messiah pleads, give another year, give another year. And the Messiah is crucified. And then to prove that salvation is offered to the nation, He's resurrected from the grave. His disciples perform miracles in His name. People's lives are transformed. There's never been anything like it. And Israel is given one more opportunity. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The nation did not repent, did not turn to God, did not believe in Jesus. And in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the city, tore down the temple, and captured Israel, was scattered throughout the Roman Empire. This fig tree also is an illustration not just of a fruitless life. Listen carefully. Jesus wants it personal. He's talking about a fruitless life, not just a fruitless nation. He says a fruitless life that's been so cared for by God's just taken up space. And there's impending judgment. He said it's time to repent. Other people have died. You haven't. Don't judge them, judge yourself. You're still alive. How long? You don't know. One thing is certain, death, judgment, and eternal perishing for those who reject Christ. That's certain. So what is the challenge? Now, today, right now, don't be deceived. Make sure that you have repented of your sins and trusted in the one and only way of hope and rescue, Jesus Christ. Friend, I want to ask you, have you repented of your sins? Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. You're still alive. You're hearing my voice. You have this opportunity. Now, not tomorrow. Now, this moment. Now, your heart is beating. Now, you have breath in your lungs. You don't have promise of another moment. Now, will you turn to Christ? Will you stake eternity? Gambling. That you have another opportunity. Today. If you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. This is the gospel moment. You say I'm a sinner. That's who he came for. <laughs> Only sinners repent. Only sinners. Can repent. And be made righteous in Christ. I want to tell you something as we come to communion. To these thoughts. Friends, listen carefully. 
Repentance is a gift of God's love. And now, as you take that cup and that bread in just a few moments, listen. Repentance is a gift of God's love. Therefore, receive it in love from your friends. Don't ever consider someone to be your enemy. Who in love calls on you to repent. Don't dare make this mistake that you think someone is your enemy because in love they tell you the truth. Right now as you take communion... If someone has spoken to you about where you are with the Lord or your attitude or your actions, receive that as a gift of love. Number two, share it in love as a friend. We are not friends, really being friends to people that we know are headed to disaster and we do nothing. Some of us are afraid of offending someone. Speak the truth in love. Judge your own heart. But my friend, do not hear the lie of the enemy. If you love someone, love them enough to tell them the truth in Jesus' name. Because if you don't, and I know this, more than loving them, you're loving yourself. You don't want to be rejected. My friend, love your neighbor as yourself. More than yourself. Tell them the truth in Jesus' name. And at communion, determine to do it. And number three, at communion, run to the dearest friend you will ever have. And the dearest friend you'll ever have is the friend of sinners, Jesus Christ. A friend of sinners. Don't you thank God? It's how foolish. Should we be friends of sinners? Well, thank God there was a friend of this sinner. How about you? Friend. Dearest friend, flee to him. I told you there's two towers. Don't get afraid. It's not the second sermon. Let me tell you about a tower that will never fall. A tower that will never fall. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous run into it. And they're safe. Oh friend, only one safe place in this sin-cursed rocking, groaning, hate-filled world. The only safe place is in the tower of our God in His Son, Jesus Christ, whose side was open for sinners. Run into Him and be safe. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our heads are bowed.
Let's prepare our hearts. Oh, friend, this is about repenting. This is the time to repent. This is a gift moment. This is a gift moment. Ask the Lord, have I truly repented? Have I truly turned from my sin and turned to Christ? Is there fruit in my faith or do I live a fruitless life? Flee to Jesus. And oh friend, whatever the sin may be, whatever the pain, whatever the hurt, whatever the fear, run to your dearest friend Jesus. Run into Him. No safe place like the safety of His arms.